Greetings, Internet. Welcome back to The Circuit. And today we're having our first installment of our Back to Basics series. I'm running solo today, but uh, this is a new segment we're thinking about rolling out more broadly. Back to Basics, where we take a look at a single company or a single topic over a historical time frame. Most of our content is very much focused on what's happening today. That's what's of most interest to people. But we think there's also value in taking time to tell a longer story, looking back further in history, which gives us the ability to sort of dig into the technical details and also to talk about some of the you know weird, social, funny anecdotes that pop out of the history of semiconductors. So we're starting this one today with a look at Broadcom, or the company we know today is Broadcom. The story of Broadcom really begins back in the 1960s, back at a time when most semiconductors were designed and manufactured by hardware companies, by the big electronics companies. And so all the big electronics companies had chip divisions, and that included Hewlett-Packard, right? HP, the most, the, the prototypical startup, literally started by two guys in a garage. You can go visit that garage today. It's a shrine of sorts. Uh, and HP made chips for a long time through the rise of merchant silicon in the 80s, the fabulous revolution in the 90s. But by the end of the 90s, like most electronics companies, HP was starting to realize that having an internal chip division was suboptimal. These companies were subscale. They weren't competitive. They were too dependent or too taxed by internal peers. And you know, also by this time, the, the Hewlett and Packard families had left the company, right? Shout out to the both families. They do a lot of great philanthropic work. But by the late 90s, early 2000s, HP was run by fully paid members of the cult of shareholder value. And so they set out to spin off all of HP's non-core businesses, right? So anything that wasn't a PC, a printer, a server got spun off into a company called Agilent. And HP did a lot of other things, right? Agilent would go on to spin off into another five or six companies, life sciences, test and measurement. And buried deep inside of all that was HP's chip division. It didn't even really have a name. HP Semiconductor, HP Limited, something like that. And at this point, it wasn't even really making that many semiconductors. It was mostly making passive electrical components, capacitors, resistors, and, and filters. So let me take a pause on the HP narrative and talk a little bit about radio signals. Right? Radio frequency signals, RF signals, are something of a black magic. Right? When you transmit an RF signal, radio signal, you never really know how far it's going to go. There are all kinds of real-world variables that are going to impact performance. And so when you're designing one of these systems, one of the key constraints is you want to make sure that two signals don't interfere with each other because both of them end up getting ruined. There are lots of ways to mitigate this. And in the 1920s, when the FCC was allocating commercial radio spectrum, they essentially inserted buffer bands, right, guard bands, in between the radio stations. That's why today FM radio stations are all odd-numbered, 91.1, 91.3, The odd-numbered stations are the carrier, the, the main signal, and the even numbers are the buffers, the guard bands between them. And that worked, that worked well for a long time until the 1980s and the cell phone companies came along. The mobile operators really have only one asset. It's the radio spectrum that they control. And they looked at the the guard band scheme and said, this isn't going to work because we're literally wasting 50% of our capacity. Now, our, you know, mobile operators want to squeeze every last bit of capacity out of every last hertz of spectrum. 
And so what, what they did is they turned to technology to solve this problem for them. And they mandated that all phones on their network had to have a certain amount of filters, making sure that things operated the right way. And filters do what it says on the label. They filter out unwanted signals. They make sure everything's operating where it's supposed to be operating. And these aren't really semiconductors. They're passive electrical components. I tend to think of them as ceramic, but the real RF engineers get mad at me when I say that because they're not really ceramic. They're kind of, kind of a crystal. Whatever. They're, hard, they're fairly hard to manufacture. But in the 90s, when cell phones started to become a thing, they were in enough supply that they could. this was a, a workable technical solution. And HP actually had a really good filter business. So here we have HP Semiconductor making filters, which looks like a big growth market as cell phones become more popular. But it's buried inside all these other junky commodity components. So the, the unit was losing money. And so you know who likes a, a buried treasure deep inside a hairy business? Private equity, right? That's a perfect private equity setup. And so HP slash Agilent sold their chip division to KKR and Silver Lake, right? The two 800-pound gorillas of private equity. Silver Lake in particular is, you know, big in tech. And they sold it to them in 2005 for $2.6 billion. And the private equity companies did two important things. First, they hired a corporate consultant to pay them a few hundred thousand dollars to come up with a name for this company. And they came up with a Vago. Right? That was the name of this chip division now, Vago. And that's why to this day, Broadcom's ticker is AVGO, Avago. The second, more important thing Silver Lake did is they hired a CEO to run the company, a man named Hock Tan. If we had sound engineers, this is the point where the sound engineers would, would play the Emperor's March from Star Wars, because Hock Tan is the protagonist of our story. He's a hero to some, uh, a villain to many, but unquestionably one of, if not the most influential, impactful semiconductor CEOs in the U.S. in the last 20 years. Hawk took charge and immediately set to work. He shut down all the unprofitable business lines, paired it back to basically just the filter line. He cut out all kinds of costs, fired all kinds of people. HP had a notorious bureaucracy, all these overhead, all gone. It was not fun. It was a pretty painful process for a lot of people. But he turned it around, and Avago was very soon profitable. And then at that point, soon after, he went back to Silver Lake and said, okay, let's do another one. Let's go buy another company. And they started buying other companies. They bought things like um, Psyoptics in 2013, which was, again, a company with uh, a, a very uh, profitable, uh, growing optical interconnect business buried inside a sleepy company with all kinds of costs that wasn't doing well. He came in, he pared everything down to the profitable lines, he removed all the overhead, fired a bunch of people, and turned that company around too. And this became the playbook, something that Hawk and the team at Avago would do for the next 20 years. They're still doing today. They had a clear playbook, they had knew what kind of targets they want, and they would go through and acquire and clean up all these companies, roll them up one by one. He took the company public in 2008, all kinds of little deals going on during this time. And um, also around this time, they bought the filter business out of Infineon, 
right? Infineon, again, uh, the chip arm spun out of the German industrial company Siemens, had lots of products, was going through its own sort of realignment, and so they sold off a bunch of assets, including this little filter business that made specialty filters, right? F-bar or BAW filters. And F-bar filters were very hard to manufacture. They're very high precision, very high spec part. part. It's hard to manufacture them, they were ex- and so they were expensive, right? And so they weren't really used in cell phones. They weren't really used in, they were used in a lot of specialty applications. It wasn't a huge market. In, you know, looking back on it, it's unclear whether Avago got lucky or they were just geniuses. Because just around this time, this is 2008, so sort of late 3G days, the cell phone market started to shift. In, in 2G, 2G days, sort of the early 2000s, late 90s, if you had a cell phone that supported nine different bands, frequency bands, on your cell phone, it would work pretty much anywhere in the world. You could get off a plane anywhere in the world and know that there would be at least one mobile operator operating one of those nine frequencies and your phone would work. That was 2G. Fast forward to today, 5G, the current 5G iPhone supports 72 bands. Right? We've seen this huge growth in the bands required. Now, it's not quite a one-for-one, one-filter-for-one-band one increase, but over that time period, we've seen just a continual upward, up and to the right trend for filter content in cell phones. And along the way, we started to add some pretty problematic bands, bands that would interfere with other bands. Um, there's, you know, there's one band that sort of sits right on top of GPS and Bluetooth, so if the normal operations of the phone drown out the GPS signal. So to get around this, the cell phone company started using filters, right? They needed more filters, and in particular, they needed high-precision High spec BAW or F bar filters. And there's only two companies in the world at the time that made them. And Avago or Infineon's business was by far the, the leader. This has to go down as one of the best MA deals of all time. Right? They bought this in 2008 for $21 million. Right? $21 million. Today it generates. Three four billion dollars a year in revenue, uh, just a phenomenal success, uh, and it really, in a lot of ways, changed Broadcom's fortunes, because part of their playbook is they buy a company, clean it up, and then use the cash flow to buy the next one. The F bar filter start business started to grow so well and throw off so much cash, it meaningfully increased the scale at which Avago could buy companies really accelerated their process. And so they this this playbook they started to run full force, went into overdrive, and this had a huge impact on the rest of the semiconductor industry. Right? In the year 2000, there were about 2,000 semiconductor companies in the U.S. Today, there are about 200. Avago, Hoctant, they didn't do 1,800 deals. They did 100 and change over that time period but they forced everybody else to consolidate as well. Right? So imagine the scenario if you're the CEO of a semiconductor company and you wake up one morning and you find out your biggest competitor has just been acquired by Avago. Now suddenly you're subscale, you have to compete with that giant and all their cost-cutting fervor. The only way that you can survive is to get acquired yourself. Or even worse, you realize that now you're in 
Hawk's target range. You have to go find a white knight who will let you keep your cor- corporate benefits and your comfy executive perks. Because if, if Avago buys you, you're out of a job. And this ended up being a really painful time for the industry. Everyone was forced to consolidate, right? It really drove this big, big wave of consolidation. And it was painful, right? There were a lot of CEOs, most of the CEOs at this time, had, a, had to really struggle to make this mental transition. Most of them had come into the industry in the go-go days of the 80s and the 90s, when semiconductors were a growth industry. And what mattered was having the hot product and the hot technology. Now suddenly, those things don't matter. Semiconductors are a mature ex-growth industry, and what matters most is cash flow and scale. And there are a lot of a lot of CEOs who couldn't make this, this that mental transition, and you know left the industry. It was a really painful time. There's still a lot of bad feelings among senior semiconductor people about this. Um, it was hard. But you know who wasn't complaining? Avago shareholders, right? From IPO till today, Avago's Broadcom stock is up about 1,200%. It's one of the best-performing semiconductor stocks of this century, right? It's, it's, it's either that or NVIDIA. They're sort of both pretty close. Interesting to note that both have had a single CEO that entire run, but it's just an incredible, incredible gain. So Avago goes along consolidating the industry, rolling everything up for years, deal after deal. But eventually, this model has two big problems. And the first one that Avago encounters is the scaling factor, right? Each successive deal has to be bigger than the last. You get to some point where you need your next deal to be big enough to move the needle. Otherwise, it's almost not worth doing, right? And over time, that means the pool of available targets steadily shrinks. You keep buying your way up. Eventually, you're going to run out of targets. And so this brings us to 2015 and Broadcom. Broadcom, Broadcom. Avago approaches Broadcom about a deal in 2015. And Broadcom is very, very different from Avago. Broadcom makes chips for networking. Right? And networking has some really difficult problems that need to be solved in semiconductors. It was very it was seen as very challenging to do. It was founded by academics. Henry Samueli was a professor uh, at UC, UCLA, I think, and his graduate student, Henry Nichols. And they, had, they were very, very smart guys. They had come up with a really smart solution for doing networking products. And when I say networking, um, most consumers don't interact with Broadcom chips too much directly. Maybe if you have a high-end Wi-Fi access point in your home, that might, might have a, a Broadcom Wi-Fi chip in it. But most of their products end up in networking Cisco, Google data centers, Juniper, telecom networks, things like that. And again, this is pretty challenging stuff. And so over the years, Broadcom had built this reputation as being something of an elite in the semiconductor industry. They got the best engineers out of school. Um, they had a, just these incredible offices in Southern California and Irvine. Right? Everything was wood paneling and marble countertops. There was an executive suite that had all this incredible modern art collection. Samueli was very active in, in philanthropic work, and he owned the Anaheim Ducks, the hockey team. Right? This was an elite, almost white shoe firm. And so when Avago came along, 
even though this was a uh, this was not a hostile deal, like the board and the management team went along with the acquisition the whole time, it ended up being very contentious in in almost in a sort of classist way. There are just people who felt uncomfortable with this deal, uh, almost as if you know Dollar General was buying Tiffany, right? It was that kind of vibe. People just didn't like it. They didn't feel it was fairly valued, and so it wasn't hostile, but the vote got fairly contentious, and. I like to tell this story because it really highlights a lot about Avago and Hawk's process. And, and I should be clear, I, I keep talking about in, Hawk and Avago interchangeably. He had a really strong team around him, a bunch of very, very, at this point, we're very seasoned in doing deals, right? It includes people like Tom Krause, his CFO. They had developed a skill set for getting deals done. And this is more than just sort of hurting bankers and lawyers. What they were really good at is also figuring out what it was that people wanted beyond money to get them to go along with the deal. And in the case of Broadcom, that brings us to Henry Nichols. Right? Henry Nichols was the younger co-founder of Broadcom. But in, in the early 2000s, Broadcom had gotten, for, for a minute, ended up in the middle of one of those options dating scandals. And it's not worth getting into all of it, but for a brief moment, they're very much under the media scrutiny very intently. And as part of that, sort of to get out from under that, they sacrificed Henry Nichols. He was kicked out of the company. Right? But he still owned shares. Right? He still owned a few percent of the company, and in a contentious takeover battle like this, every share matters. And so Hawk and team made an offer to Nichols. They offered him two things in particular. First, they said, we're going to keep the name Broadcom. We'll change Avago's name to Broadcom. Right? The Avago team didn't care. It meant nothing to them. It was a con corporate consulting name. Right? They were happy to throw it away. But to Nichols and the team at Broadcom, it, it had immense sentimental value. That was one. Two, they offered him a job at the company. He would get an office and a title and a lab and some people to work for him. But most importantly, he would get a badge. Right? He would be able to get back into the building, back into the company that he founded. And that was enough. That was what he really wanted. He was already wealthy. He was just going to become even fabulously wealthy. But having that sort of sentimental pride thing mattered a lot to him. At least this is how the story goes. And he went along with the deal. And so did enough other people that Avago won. And they changed their name to Broadcom. They kept the ticker, though. Always read the fine print. Uh, but they, they kept the, 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 you know, Broadcom, Bavago is now Broadcom. I also like to tell the story because it, of what happens next. The day the deal closes, Hawk flies down from San Jose to an all-hands meeting at Broadcom's headquarters in Irvine. And again, it's in this giant auditorium if it's like 300 people and wood paneling, marbles, fancy place. And it was video simulcast to all the Broadcom offices around the world. And remember, this is 2015, before Zoom, back when video conferencing was something novel, a novelty that somebody, people actually enjoyed. And he gets up on stage and he's wearing a Broadcom t-shirt. And the crowd goes crazy. Yeah, all right, woohoo, we're keeping the name. And then it's all downhill from there. Because Hawk lays out his vision for the company and what he's planning to do, and it's not well received, to put it mildly. 
I talked to people there who said there was actually booing at some point, right? You've just been acquired. This is your new CEO and you're booing him on, the, on day one. Didn't matter. It was Hawk's company, right? So he went through and he cut all kinds of costs. Pretty much anybody who had an office door who wasn't working in a cubicle was fired. Um, they had a core R&D engineering team, something like 800 people, some of the best networking semiconductor designers in the world, all gone, right? Just absolutely pared back the company radically. So I actually had a friend who was working here at this time, and it was interesting because as painful as that process was for some, for him, it was, it was a huge boost, right? He was, I think, a senior director, director, senior director, and he came into work one morning and everyone between him and basically the CEO had been fired. Now he was in charge of his product line. He was solely responsible for it. His, his decisions were what mattered. He didn't have to go to committees. He didn't have to have things triple signed. So long as he hit his numbers, he would get paid really, really well. Now, of course, he had to work 80 hours a week and he ended up getting divorced. But, but from a career perspective, this was immensely empowering. It was a big move forward for him, for his career, right? So now Avago is Broadcom. And that deal does ends up doing very, very well for them. However, it does go back to the original problem of what to buy next. And really, there's only one target left, right? Qualcomm. Now, this is going to be very different in, from Broadcom in a lot of respects, but in a lot of other ways, it made a lot of sense. Right? This is the last major chip company that sort of fit Broadcom's criteria for buying, Hawk's criteria. It had some immensely profitable business units inside. It had a duopoly in cellular modems. It had this crazy lucrative licensing business. But it also had a lot of a lot of extra cost, right? This is still a family-run company. The founders were, founding family was still involved. Um, that's a company that to this day still runs an, you know, an airline. They have four fancy corporate jets and 30 employees to man it. There's a lot of, a lot of cost in, in Qualcomm at this time that probably wasn't needed. And the big difference, though, is that this, was, this deal was going to be hostile. Right? This was not going to be a friendly deal. No one was going to go along with this. The Qualcomm team really didn't like Hawk. They didn't like Broadcom, the original Broadcom. So there's a lot of bad blood here. But this was the next target. And I was actually working at Qualcomm at this time. And I remember this really clearly. I, I went uh, down to San Diego once to meet one of their M&A team. And this is the first time I'd met him. And we, we discussed a couple matters. But towards the end of the conversation, I, I said, hey, you know, I'm hearing that... Uh, Hawk is coming for us next. It's a pretty big rumor up in, in the Bay Area. And he, he, he didn't he didn't buy it. He was a little he was he was somewhat dismissive, kind of kind of scoffed and said, Yeah, he can't afford us. And I said, No, I've I've done the math. It's a stretch, but they can afford us. He's getting a little frustrated. Grimaces at me and says, We'll hold him off. I mean, what what do you, what would you recommend? What do you think we should do? And I said, well, why don't we go out and buy somebody else, strip out their costs, bulk up, and push us past the point where he can afford us? And at this point, he was pretty angry. He was red. I saw there's a vein bulging on his forehead. And he just stared me dead in the eye and said, 
Qualcomm does not engage in financial engineering. Okay, so there's that. Uh, but sure enough, a few months later, Hawk makes a Hawk makes a hostile bid for Qualcomm. And at first, Qualcomm doesn't quite know how to respond. A few months in, they they announce that they're going to buy NXP. That they're going to, you know, I I remember at the time they they had this beautiful corporate presentation talking about cross strategy and synergy and all these strategic opportunities. But everybody looked at it and knew it was that was all sort of secondary. They were buying NXP so they could strip out the costs, bulk up, and make themselves unaffordable for Broadcom. <clears throat> the The problem was that 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 didn't work. First off, the Chinese regulators sat on the deal. They, they never approved. To this day, they've never even responded. Right, um, so that deal wasn't going to happen in, in China. But even a bigger problem was that. This was taking place as the Broadcom, combined Broadcom numbers were flowing into the old Avago's financials and all the cost cutting was taking effect. And Broadcom just kept putting out incredible result after incredible result. All those synergies were coming into play. And Broadcom stock ran. Qualcomm stock was stuck at the, the Broadcom bid price, but Broadcom stock ran. And so eventually, Hawk said, doesn't matter. I'll buy Qualcomm or I'll buy Qualcomm and NXP. I can afford both. So it came down to a proxy vote. Right? Both management teams went and toured the country and met with every shareholder, mutual fund out there toward the world, presented their plan, made their case. And as it got down to the wire, it was looking pretty bad for the Qualcomm team. Right? It was not a lot of enthusiasm for their plan, a lot of skepticism. I remember speaking to a, a, a fairly large portfolio manager, a portfolio manager of a fairly large mutual fund at that time, someone whose fund had owned Qualcomm stock since the IPO, a, a real believer and longtime holder of Qualcomm, and even he was going to vote for the Broadcom plan. It, so it wasn't looking good. And the deal was, it was something like the deal was on a Wednesday. And I remember Monday night, we all said, all right, done. Broadcom's going to win this one. And then we started to hear rumors that something was coming. And sure enough, Tuesday morning, the Trump administration issued an executive order blocking the deal for obscure tax reasons going back to the sale to Silver Lake in 2008. Broadcom, or Vago, had been domiciled in Singapore. You know, the management team was based in Santa Clara, California. Most of their operations were here. This was just sort of a legal, you know, a legal placeholder the Singapore, Singaporean domicile. They were even in the, in the process of re-domiciling back to the U.S., but since it was technically a foreign company, it felt under the jurisdiction of the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, CFIUS, and the Trump administration directed CFIUS to block this deal on national security grounds. And to this day, nobody quite understands how that took place. From a, a purely political standpoint, it seems very strange, right? Hawk uh, had been very close to Trump. He'd been on television with him a number of times. I think he'd contributed to his campaign. Uh, he'd gone around the country touting Trump's jobs plan or something. And by contrast, the, the, the Jacobs family who ran Qualcomm and the company itself, for historical reasons, had been much closer to the Democratic Party. Like, I'm not saying they were actively political, but just they had a lot of ties 
going back to the Clinton era. They'd just done a lot of work there. Um, so it wasn't politically, it wasn't like someone was getting a political favor. It, that, that didn't make sense. There's some theories that, you know, in its early days, Qualcomm had done a lot of work with the, the Navy and the Air Force. And so someone had called in a favor, a very old favor at the Pentagon. Nobody knows. Sort of adding to the, to the intrigue, about a week after this, uh, Paul Jacobs, who had been chairman of the company, the last Jacobs family member still working day to day at Qualcomm, uh, was ousted from the board. Again, nobody knows why. Was it related to the deal? Was it not? It's a mystery. Someday someone's going to write a memoir and we'll know, but until then, not quite clear. But either way, didn't matter. The deal was dead. So this presented a bit of a dilemma for Broadcom and Hawk. And at first, there were a lot of rumors that he was going to come back again. Right At this point, it's almost 2019. The election, the U.S. election is down, just coming not so far out. And it sounded like his thinking was he'd wait until after the election, and that would s- somehow reset the political calculus, right? By that point, Broadcom would be domiciled in the U.S., so it wouldn't be subject to CFIUS anymore. Something would change in the administration one way or the other that maybe would allow the deal to happen this time. And then it all went silent. Like, I'd been hearing that rumor for a long time, he's going to come back, and then complete silence. And... I don't want to get poetical about this, but I think of that, there's that poem about Alexander the Great, right? He's conquered the known world, and he gets his army to the banks of the Indus River, and it's so wide, he can't see the other side. And the, the line is, and lo, Alexander wept, for there are no more lands left to conquer. And I, I kind of feel that's how Hawk felt about semiconductors. He conquered everything there was to conquer. And sure enough, a few months later, he announces he's going to buy Computer Associates. Computer Associates? What, what's that? That's not a chip company. No, they're a, a software company and not a glamorous, sexy software company. They make IT plumbing systems. You know, they attach your, IT, your ERP system to your CRM system and your HR system. Not glamorous, not exciting, but it's infrastructure software. So it's buried deep inside of enterprises everywhere. It's very sticky. It comes with all kinds of service and support contracts. It has long-term recurring cash flow. And Computer Associates was had been around for a long time. It was still kind of family-operated. So there are a lot of costs, a lot of things to, to cut. In other words, it was like the perfect, the perfect Avago, Hoctan target. It just wasn't in semiconductors. And I, I remember there were a lot of... Uh, there were a lot of analysts looking at this at the time, just pulling their hair out, losing their minds, going, what are you doing? This is not a semiconductor company. And I think, I think they'd all made the mistake of thinking that Avago Broadcom was a semiconductor company. It's not. A, it's not. It's a private equity fund. And just like a traditional private equity fund will one day buy cement plants and then the next day buy nursing homes, he just moved on, Broadcom had just moved on to a new, a new target, a new industry where there were more things to buy. Right? There's a lot, of, a lot of software names that meet this criteria. And so he, he bought Computer Associates, and he went on and bought another one. Now he's in the process of buying VMware. All very clear pattern. Sticky, recurring revenue, impossible to pull out, buried deep inside of 
lots of un, you know, extra extra bloat. They all there are a lot of targets. It's a target rich environment, and that seems to be where they're going. Now I mentioned a while ago that there's two problems with this model. And the first one they saw was scale. The second problem was, do you risk cutting too much? When you're rolling things up, do you risk cutting things too much? And for a few years recently, we've started to hear rumblings from customers in, like, in the networking space, other places too, but especially in the networking space, where the old Broadcom had sort of been the flagship they had this flagship Tomahawk product that was very much a sort of central piece of a lot of networking systems. And a lot of us heard rumblings from customers like, oh, you know, it's it's not competitive. It's falling behind. The Broadcom chip is falling behind. The roadmap is not exciting. And so there were some people who thought, oh, you know what? They've cut R&D too much. Um, they're not having the same, the chip's not as exciting as it was before. They're going to lose market share. And just before that rumbling really started to mean anything, they rolled out the new chip, right? The new Tomahawk uh, came out late last year and everybody's very happy with it. And I think what shifted is the old Broadcom had built a reputation for engineering excellence. And they saw value in having that in their brand and having the latest, hottest chip come out at a pretty rapid tempo. (laughs) And so they wanted to be first and so their roadmap was somewhat accelerated. The new Broadcom just wants to have the right product at the right time. They're optimizing for something very different. And that's what they delivered. So, you know, maybe there's some truth to this. Maybe they do risk cutting R&D too much. I would say there's no conclusive proof one way or the other. And I guess the other thing that people worry about is, does this playbook that they've used for so long in semiconductors, does it work in software? And I don't think we know the answer to that yet, uh, but at this stage, I'm inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt. So that's where we are today. Thank you for listening. We will speak with you again next week.